If you have a copy of the Bible, please turn to our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This passage of Scripture describes the ascension of Jesus. And in the ascension of Jesus, there are two major themes. Heaven is the first one. And the second one is power. Heaven and power. So let's start with the first theme. The passage that Evelyn just read to us. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. This happened 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. And here we see in this chapter, this passage, Jesus ascending into heaven. Listen again to Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Heaven, 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 heaven. This word just keeps coming up. Now, I want look up here for just a second. So this is my copy of the Bible. And that passage I just read to you occurs on page 1,095. A thousand pages into the story. So look, if you were to open up a book and there's this amazing thing happening um, and you want to know what it meant, um, if, if the book is a novel, then the way to know what it meant is to start at the beginning, right? Okay, here's the deal. Heaven is a, is a big part of Scripture. I mean, it comes up on the first page, and it comes up on the last page. Um, in the very beginning of Scripture, there's a story of creation, and it, it plays out over seven days. And every day, God creates something different. And every day, God, at, at the end of creating stuff, steps back and says, oh, that's good. And he pronounces goodness over it. He affirms it. Except there's one day where God does not say it's good. It's silent. It doesn't come up. And that's the day when God split heaven and earth apart. And that becomes the, the um, energy that drives the story the Bible tells. Because the last page of the Bible ends with heaven coming back to earth and heaven and earth being integrated now, that's a remarkable thing to notice, that it's good, it's good, it's good. Then there's one day where there's no it's good. And then that thing, the splitting apart of heaven and earth, is the thing that the Bible ends with. That's the story the Bible tells. One way to think of the whole story the Bible tells is that God's intention all along was to integrate heaven and earth. But here's the catch. You're, you're, you're in danger of misunderstanding what that means if you, don't recognize, if you don't allow the Bible to define what it means by heaven. For example, if I were to, I don't know, show up with, um, at, I'll pick on Phil and Leanne just because they look tough right now and they can handle it. If I were to show up at their house one day and there was yelling and screaming and um, they were having um, a marital discussion and, um, and without even listening, I stepped in and I decided to solve it for them. Now, you know how well that would go? 
Phil, how well would it go to, for me to try to solve? No, not very well, right? So look, this is 87% of the way into the story. And so you turning here and, and deciding what it means based on not knowing the context is a pretty dangerous move. The Bible has been very intentional about describing heaven from page one on. And the way the Bible describes heaven is that it is this. It is not a place. It is not a place far away. In the Bible, heaven is God's space, which intersects, intersects and transcends our space. It's a dimension of our world. It's not a place way up there in the sky, far off somewhere. In the Bible, heaven is all around us, and we get glimpses of it in the mystery of the Eucharist and in every act of generous human love. We're reminded of it when we see a beautiful thing in creation and when we see creation diminishing, when, when we see the leaves in the fall brilliant and, and red and orange and yellow and then fall away and the tree looks barren, in those moments when we see passing beauty, we're pointed to the fuller beauty, which is God's, and which he will bring the birth once and for all when the world is renewed. Jesus taught us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven. That's why the splitting apart of heaven and earth is such a like, problem in the Bible because God is not moving this thing toward their forever being apart, but we're taught to pray for earth and heaven to be integrated. The Christian hope, in other words, is not simply that when we die, we go to heaven, although that's when you're suffering and death is a prospect, death is like a doorway into peace. And that is a glorious thing. But that's not the fullness of the hope of the Christian life. Those who love Jesus, when we die, we will be with him. We will be in heaven, which is not a place. It's a dimension that overlaps and intersects with this dimension. But the great big Christian hope of the Bible is not to get to heaven. The Bible doesn't end in heaven. The Bible ends on earth. It's the integration of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth united together. So you see, in the Bible, heaven is not a thing used as a carrot to escape this world. So Jesus ascending into heaven in Acts chapter 1 was not about Jesus moving and leaving, and going far away. It's not about Jesus being some absentee landlord way out there past Pluto, looking at the earth through his giant telescope, paying attention to the tenants who are messing things up. In the Bible, heaven is the extra dimension, the God dimension, and it's all around us. And the God who is there is present to us. He's present with us. He shares our joys and our sorrows, and he shares our longing for the day when the whole creation, heaven and earth together, will perfectly reflect his wisdom and his love and his justice and his peace. Okay, that's a summary of a thousand pages of developing what you're supposed to have in your imagination when it says Jesus ascends into heaven. And notice, 
Notice something about who Jesus is when he ascends into heaven. The passage that Sam read us out of the gospel, out of the gospel, the big emphasis was he had a physical body. Hey, do you have anything to eat? He was physical. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He had been raised from the dead and his body had not been made less than human. His body had been made maximally human, maximally physical. Jesus that ascended into God's dimension is a physical Jesus with a physical body. Jesus right now in heaven bears human flesh and the marks of the nails and the spear and and he lives with his real physical body in heaven. Now that's mind-boggling because the way I set it up until that moment Probably we were all imagining it as a spiritual dimension. But now there's a physical Jesus in that dimension. Now, remember I told you there are two major themes to the ascension. The first is heaven. Before I move to the next one, let me just point out two very practical things that what I've just said about Jesus ascending into heaven, two very practical ways that that can have something to do with your life today tomorrow. The first has to do with prayer, and the second has to do with racism. Now, if that makes you agitated right now, um, I'll talk about prayer first, try to get you there. Okay, so here it is. The fact that Jesus is in heaven, and heaven is a dimension, not a place, means very simply, he's not a long ways off. Very simply. It means that when you pray, It's not like he's in another galaxy. That's wonderful. Our our father is in heaven. Doesn't mean, can you hear me, God? This is a really long distance call, so I need to make it quick. Our father is in heaven actually means the opposite of that. It means you're near to me. You're right here. When you pray to Jesus, don't imagine him far away. If your imagination is filled and shaped by the story the Bible tells about heaven, then when you pray to Jesus, you will imagine him in the room with you. Imagine that. This remarkable Savior, all-powerful, he created the cosmos, and he's just full of love and mercy and grace to his core, and he loves you, and he died for you, and when you turn to him in prayer, he's there. So imagine it. And the, the, my favorite way to do this is when I pray in my office, I sit in my green chair and I look right at my couch and I just imagine Jesus sitting there. And now it changes prayer because now it's prayer. Prayer is I just talk like one friend to another, to the Christ who's present. That's the first way that this can make a big difference in your life if you will really let it shape you. The second way is has to do with the racial divisions in our country right now. Jesus ascended into heaven. And that has to shape the way we as a church are navigating this really confusing kind of thing that's happening in America with everybody yelling at each other and accusing each other of things. And what we need to do is we need to start from this point. We need to start from the place that if God, re- if the Father received the Son with a physical body into heaven, that that is a foreshadowing of what God is going to do with all things. 
it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a powerful lesson for us that bodies matter. Your body's not just the truck that carries around the cargo of your soul. No, God, the redemption and work of God in Christ is to redeem people. All of a person, body and soul. Jesus is a fully human person. He is God in the flesh. Now, what that means when it comes to this crazy rhetoric going on about racial divisions is that our starting place has to be not critique, but affirmation. Our starting place has to be every human matters infinitely. We have to reject anything that oppresses any human. And so while I know so many people are tired of talking about race and racism, so many people, you want to come to church and get away from the problems of the world and the noise that's out there. So many of us are weary of the politics and there is a deep desire to move past the trauma of 2020, but the trauma of racism should not be moved past. It can't be swept under the rug. And the way to heal from racism, the racism that was at the founding of America, that continued through chattel slavery and transferred into the institutions of Jim Crow and then into the institutional structures of mass incarceration, the way to healing the racial divisions of America are complicated, and yet we must not shy away from them. And we, the church, must be a part of the healing process. In Ephesians, the healing of racial divisions is for Paul at the heart of the work of the gospel. The ascension of Jesus Christ, fully human, fully embodied, this underlines the glory of every human body. And we have to look back into our history so long and so deeply and so understandingly that our hearts break. That white people enslaved black people. It was a terrible sin. And no sin is without consequences. And we have not yet fully come to grips with it. And we have not yet as a nation healed of it. So we must love our neighbors. And seek to defend our neighbor from harm. And, and at the heart of Christianity is repair. To be a child of the king is to be repaired by the king. And part of our work in culture is to find wounds and brokenness and division and repair. Christians should be the first people to divisions to work for repair. That's at the heart of the gospel. We have to repair the harm that's been done by the culture of white supremacy our African-American friends and neighbors have suffered. We must all work hard to see it until we understand it. And so we must love our neighbors. And at the heart of that love is the work of repair. And each of us must give ourselves in our own ways to the work of repairing this world. And when we do the work of repair, we will face grief and anger and struggle. 
But we will do the work of repair with faith and hope and love that comes from the crucifixion and the resurrection. And as you do this, as you do the works of love, you will be crowned with light. Now that brings us to the second major theme of the ascension. Remember the first one is heaven. And I've just talked about two ways it should play out in our lives. But I want to pick up on the second way. If the, word, if, if the ascension of Jesus' physical body into heaven mean we must pay attention to bodies that are being oppressed and respond, how are we going to respond? What does our response to division look like? And that brings us to the second major theme of the ascension, which is power. What is power? How do you use power? How, how, do, we, how do we work for change in our world? Okay. When Jesus ascended into heaven, remember, we are seeing God the Son, fully human, deeply, richly human Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh. And when he ascended into heaven, part of what's happening is it's the same thing as saying, I I don't know, Kenlin is really moving up in his company. We use ascent as a metaphor for rising with power and influence. The ascension of Jesus into heaven is like us saying, Jeremy is now in the corner office. It's a way of, of visually stating Jesus is now in control. He's now the Lord of the world. Here's the way to figure it out. Remember I said that God's reality is multidimensional. Right, So there's earth, God's our space. Heaven, there's God's space. And these two things are overlapping and interlocking. Here's a really cool way to see it. Think of Acts chapter 1, the ascension. Think of this as watching something happen on earth. Daniel chapter 7, all right, that was read to us earlier. That's the same event, but you're watching it in the heavenly dimension. Same exact event. It's sort of like Revelation 12 is the, lion, the dragon trying to eat the child. That's Jesus' birth told from heaven's view, whereas Luke 2 is Jesus' birth told from earth's view. So you've got these two pictures of the exact same event. So if you have your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, there's this vision Daniel has where he's seeing things from a heavenly perspective. And there's these monsters. That's the beginning of chapter 7. We didn't read that part. But then there's one monster in particular. He comes from the sea and he stands up in the great courtroom of God. And he speaks with arrogance. And he boasts about his power. And this monster represents the great empires of the world and it's just babbling on about all the things it can do and its greatest thing it does is it kills and then God the father described as the ancient of days silences the empires of the world and he exalts to his right hand notice verse 13 Daniel 7 verse 13 one like a son of man which was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. So here is the Ancient of Days exalting to his right hand one who comes up to him into the courtroom. This is the ascension. And In the Ancient of Days, God the Father gives Jesus dominion, authority, and kingly power. 
It's what Jesus meant in Matthew 28 when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. He's saying Daniel 7, which was one of the most popular passages um, in all of Judaism at the time of Jesus' life. So Jesus, when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, all the Jews around would have known. He's quoting Daniel 7, and he's saying, he's that one. But here's the important point for this morning. When the, ancient, when the Father gives the Son all power, what is power? See, now we're, we're in danger of the same danger we had with heaven. We're in danger of defining that word the way our culture defines that word. In, in the exact same mistake we could make with heaven, not letting a thousand pages define what it means by heaven, you need to let the whole story define what, what is power in that moment. When God gives him all power, this is not the same sort of power the monster was bragging about having. In fact, when that kind of power was bragged about, God just silenced it. No, after all, remember Jesus who ascended into heaven was exalted at the right hand of the Father. He was given dominion, authority, and power. This is the Jesus. What did power look like in his life? This is the Jesus who suffered cruelly and was crucified and was then raised from the dead. When you look at Jesus in Daniel 7 and Acts chapter 1, you are not seeing the love of power You are seeing the power of love. The opposite of the beast's power. Jesus died in love for the world. And then the father vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand. And the chief thing that the monsters of the world can do is kill. That's how their power functions. It's force. And at the heart of the Christian gospel stands this ridiculous paradox that that is... that. That true power is is found in the apparent failure and shameful death of a young Jew at the hands of a ruthless empire. That that's true power. Look at it this way. Remember, I keep saying there's multi-dimensions to reality. So look at it this way. When you read about the crucifixion from the earthly level, it looks like defeat. But if you could have stood in heaven watching it, it would not have played out as a tragedy. It would have, his, his being lifted up on the cross, he said, was his being lifted up on his throne. It was his act of enthronement. The, the crucifixion was victory, the death of Jesus. He took the powers of the world, and in that moment, Pilate wasn't judging them. In that moment, Jesus was judging the powers of the world, and they were being put to shame, and they were rebuked for their arrogance, and the sacrificial love of Jesus, giving himself up for the sins of the world, was declared to be the right form of power, the right use of power. And this loving Jesus has been enthroned as the Lord of the world, and he is still ruling in the way he got to the throne with love, with generous, sacrificial love. And so that power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. What's the power? It's the power of love. Look at it this way. Parts of the church in America 
have been seduced to think that the way you fight the powers of the world is you fight them at their own game. And parts of the church in America have been tempted to think we can beat the world at its own game. And when we imagine that the victory of our cause is so important that we are willing to use the world's means, any means necessary, then we've made the tragic mistake of forgetting the cross. When Jesus ascended into heaven and was presented before the Father, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, gave him dominion and glory in the kingdom Verse 14, Daniel 7, 14, so that all people's nations and languages should serve him. But how do we bend the world into the ways of God? Through the power of the beast or through the power of love? That's what happened at the ascension. When Jesus arrived in heaven, when that happened, not only was Jesus vindicated, but Jesus' way was vindicated the way of love, the way of sacrificial love, the way of suffering love. And we have to walk that out as we seek to be agents repairing the divisions in our own families, with our siblings, with our in-laws, with our step-parents, with our children, with our spouses. Going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power, the power of love, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. As followers of Jesus, our job is to enter into every single domain of society. We should not leave anything out. We cannot leave out government. We can't leave out public education. We can't leave out architectural or civil engineering or business or homemaking or child rearing. We must go into every single domain in the way of Jesus, in the power of love. In this world that gives us so much suffering, we must lay hands on it and call it back to God and give it hope. We must learn from Jesus the power of of love, And we have to put it into practice in the way we treat others. And if you voted for Trump because of values that you have, then you must learn from Jesus the power of love and put it into practice in the way you treat the people in our church who voted for Biden. And if you voted for Biden, you must believe and practice the power of love, not the love of power, in how you Facebook about Trump, about the Capitol riots. This is what we offer. We need Democrats and Republicans in this church who are working from their own political base in the power of love. That's what will move us forward. We must swear off all forms of manipulation and domination. And instead, we must give ourselves away to others in risky and generous acts of love. One time, Napoleon Bonaparte, in a particularly kind of truthful moment, he said that all the great empires of the world depend on force. 
They make fear and death their weapons. But Jesus, in the ascension, was given by God the Father an empire not built on force, built on love. What you build it on is what its nature is. And so as we turn toward Jesus, as we open our hearts to the warmth of his love, we, be, we can begin to lose our fear. And when we lose our fear, we can begin to become people through whom the power of the love of God can flow through us into the world. And that is an essential part of what it means to follow Jesus. And as the power of that love replaces the love of power, we are anticipating that last day, great day when God's kingdom will spread to every hill and valley, every mountain and plain, and from the arts to the sciences, and from math to sociology, from government to business, from economics to city planning, and on and on and on, the kingdom of God will grow, and God's will will be done in economics, in psychology, in medicine, in engineering, in politics. It will be done on earth, in those places, the way it's done in heaven. And we will, not, we will not only see the works of love producing flowers, but in that great last day, we will see the entire earth filled with the glory of the Lord like water covers the sea. And as we carry on with our mission, waiting for that day, we are implementing that victory and we are hastening that day. Let's pray.